And one of the things that I want to do for a moment is just tell some stories of celebration. And I promise you we will actually get into the scriptures that this morning. It wouldn't be a faithful church service if we didn't open up uh, God's word. But I hope in sharing a few of these things for a moment, it'll actually stir your affections for King Jesus and how he's been at work. And so a few days ago, just asked people, I said, hey, if, if you've got, uh, if you'd be willing, just submit a response and a number of you guys took advantage of that and it was very encouraging so thank you for for doing that you just went online and typed up a quick little thing and I want to read uh, portions of these there's there was more than what I have time for th this morning but this is not to like yay us pat ourselves on the back I want you to be encouraged that Jesus is working in and through you as the, the church that this is a collective missional endeavor that this isn't about who's up on stage it's about the body of Christ coming together to love people from the moment they hit the parking lot and they walk through the doors to ministering to people throughout the week that we have tried to instill from the very beginning that the church is more than just a Sunday morning gathering, as important as that is, and how much we try and do in this to send us back out, um, you guys have been the church. And so I pray you're encouraged in these things. So let me just read a few of these stories, and then we will we'll get into our text this morning, which I'm so excited about, because I think it's just a perfect launching point for the, the next 10 years that, by God's grace, that we'll have. And then we want to see more of these and hear more of these types of stories. So let me read to you a few of these things. Um, one person wrote in and said, God has used Crosspoint in my life by pulling me out of my comfort zone. This is my first time being at a church without any of my family. And I immediately got plugged into an incredible community of believers that have become like family. They've encouraged and challenged me in my faith, including my awesome community group, which gave me an amazing friend and roommate. I'm so thankful God brought me to Crosspoint. We heard God used Crosspoint Winter Park to change my life forever by pointing me to Jesus and a life more abundant in him. Crosspoint is an answer to prayer. God has used the people here to deepen my love for and understanding of Scripture. And he's pushed me to serve at Crosspoint ways I would not have thought possible in the past. More than anything, God has used the people here to show me what it means to love, care for, and encourage one another as we, in our own messed up ways, earnestly seek to follow him. God has used Crosspoint in our lives over the last four years. We have been part of the church. It has given us a family when we had no support system down here in Florida. Crosspoint has fed us as we've grown spiritually, expanding our knowledge of the Bible and the truths of who God truly is and how we fit into his story. Our children love Crosspoint as do we, and we are honored to be part of what God is doing here. Another story submitted. My family arrived at Crosspoint as we were coming out of a season of feeling wounded and tired. The moment we stepped through the doors, we knew that not only were we welcome in this place and invited to be part of an existing community, but there was also an invitation to come, rest, and find healing, an invitation we eagerly accepted. In a few years since that day, we have found friendship, and more than that, we've found family. We have been discipled. We have been challenged. We've grown. We've been pointed back to the life-altering truth of the gospel again and again, and we are so, so grateful that God brought us here. Crosspoint has shown us what it truly means to serve the body, another person wrote. In our almost seven years here, we faced some hard times, happy times, and Crosspoint has served us and loved us well. That speaks volumes, and we are grateful for that. Another submission here. We had been attending CPWP for about a year when I found out that I was pregnant for the first time. I was scared as we had not been married for but a few short years. Twelve months into my pregnancy, I had a miscarriage and was wrecked to my core. The feelings of guilt and shame and sadness overwhelmed me. When my community group and friends in the church found out, I was flooded with thoughtful words via texts and calls. People made meals for us, left flowers at the door, sent me letters in the mail, and allowed me to cry on their shoulder. It was in this dark time that I knew CPWP was our family. They stood with us 
when I didn't know if the dark cloud would ever, would ever lift, they were the church. Thank you. You're ministering to people. This is what the gospel compels us and motivates us and sends us out to do. So maybe I'll throw it. When I lived in Winter Park, I started attending Crosspoint while I was still a very new believer. My new faith was greatly encouraged and strengthened through Sunday morning worship, small groups, and other opportunities to serve the church and the community. My wife and I now live in North Carolina, and, 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 and even many years later, I still fondly remember the blessing that Crosspoint has been to me, my wife, and our growing family. My brother-in-law and sister-in-law now, now attend Crosspoint. We know that they are in good hands. I came to Crosspoint during a season of restlessness in my life, desperately wanting to find community, desperately needing to find, needing the kind of encouragement, sustainability that only the church can provide. There have been so many studies and conversations, so many warm greetings and faithful prayers in my five years here. The Lord has worked mightily through his people. However, what immediately struck me about this community of believers is also what I've witnessed many times since in moments of suffering and great joy that I've not been pointed to a specific program, person, prerequisite, but instead to Jesus who rescues all, redeems all, and restores all, gratefully rejoicing over what a blessing Crosspoint has been and continues to be in my life. May that continue for us, that we would point people to Jesus. I'm so thankful that God brought us to CPWP. We were looking for a new church where we saw where we saw the gospel preached, taught, and lived by both the pastors and the people of the church, and we believe that's what we saw and still see at Crosspoint. At the time, both my wife and I were heavily, uh, heavy in training for our professional careers and couldn't contribute much to the church functions, but we were in a place to hear the good news week in and week out, and slowly our lives have been transformed by God's Spirit, moving and convicting us and drawing us closer to Him. One thing I love about the family here is that the core belief of involvement and community and participation has truly been used by God to transform us and give us a place we feel as home. I love that the leadership emphasizes the cost of discipleship and everything, even your very life. And while that might sound extreme, it is true. God doesn't just want part of you. He wants all of you, and he wants to be involved in every aspect of your life. The pastors preach this and the people live this, and God uses everyone to encourage one another to surrender more and more of their lives and hearts every day. I believe I and my family have found in this place what it means to deny ourselves, to truly follow Christ, as we, and as we do so, we become more of who we were meant to be. Thank you for being the church. I'll read a few more here, and then we'll get into our text. Crosspoint has been such a blessing to me. I moved to Orlando for a short three-month stay, and I was immediately welcomed in and loved by everyone here. I was added to a community group to help support me, pray for me, and love me, even though my stay here was temporary. CPWP truly portrays God's love by accepting and welcoming everyone into their church body. CPWP will always have a special place in my heart. Another entry. I feel like I could say a lot here, but I'll try to keep it simple. For starters, hearing the gospel preached every Sunday has increased my husband and I's faith. We love hearing our oldest son tell us about the Bible stories he learned in church thanks to the amazing volunteers and Jessica's hard work. Amen? Yes, amen. Mostly, though, my community group has been life-changing. They're always there when I need prayer or to rejoice. They have, been, they have carried my family through some challenging times and celebrated it with us in good, and I will be forever grateful for them. They love Jesus fiercely and motivate me to grow in my relationship with him. What better community can you ask for? My husband and I started attending Crosspoint about three years ago, and until this past summer when we moved, we wanted a church where we could grow in our faith individually and as a couple, and we found a wonderful and sweet church family. We are so thankful to the Lord that the Lord led us to Crosspoint. Not only did we make lifelong friends and have the honor to have Jamie marry us, but our relationship with the Lord deepened. We cherished our time at Crosspoint. We always think of you all fondly. Happy 10th anniversary, Crosspoint. 
At Crosspoint, our family has found consistent fellowship, support, and opportunities to love and serve one another in the midst of some very difficult circumstances. It has truly been a gift from God. Crosspoint made Winter Park feel like home for us. We are so thankful for the kind and loving people who welcomed us in and invited us to be part of the family. I'm grateful for a church that fosters the personal and corporate pursuit of Christ so fiercely. Crosspoint Winter Park has caused me to meditate on God's word like never before. Between sermons and community groups, I'm constantly thinking over what I learned, challenged to put God's word into practice, to use it as a mirror to see areas of my life that require change or confession, and pointed back to the overwhelming beauty of my Savior that it motivates me to share him with others. Two final ones. The church has helped me through a lot of difficult times, and if it wasn't for Crosspoint, I would never have been able to make it here in Orlando. I'm glad I never gave up, and so uh, grateful of Crosspoint that they never gave up on me and was willing to help me and hold my hand through everything. God is here and is using all of Crosspoint and it is a true blessing to have met such beautiful God-sent people. I've never experienced a fellowship like this. The peace you give is remarkable. I may not have family and many friends here in Orlando, but I know that I'm not alone. And lastly, God has used Crosspoint to show me how I can be a missionary to my own community, in particular, the YMCA. And so that's what we get to talk about, we get to celebrate, is how can we continue to be about this mission? And so thank you for submitting the, the stories. Thank you for being the church that fosters and encourages that, where we're pointing people back to Jesus. And again, this is not like, yay us, look what we've done. Everything has been a, a testimony to Jesus' faithfulness. He said that he would build his church. The church is on the move and it is advancing. And we simply get to play, we get to participate. Um, and it's been a fun 10 years and just trusting that God has more for us here because there are more people still to be reached. There's more lives to be transformed. There's more people to experience uh, a community and, and not just, oh, it's like a family, but the way the scriptures talk about it is the church is a family. And so regardless of your family background of, or, you know, of origin and if it's like completely healthy and flourishing or completely dysfunctional, like you have this opportunity to know the family of God. And we want to see more people connected to that. And so as God would have it this morning, we are wrapping up our series on earth as it is in heaven. And we prayed this prayer earlier and we prayed these lines, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's this prayer that the heavenly realm where everything is rightly oriented or everything is rightly in you know, the way that God intends for it to be would begin to break in, that the sphere of the heavenly would invade the darkness of this earth, of this world, to go to the places of brokenness and of hurt and of pain and that Jesus' will, not my will, not your will, but that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we've been exploring this theme of justice and the word that we've been looking at is this word it shows up over 200 times in the Old Testament, this Hebrew word mishpat. And it's the word for justice, but it's more than just a courtroom scene, though it can include that. It's this idea of a right ordering of all things. We wanna be about mishpat. We wanna be about the right ordering, and Jesus asks us to bring us. In fact, it's not just ask, he commands us to. And he says, the poor, the marginalized, the broken, those that are living in darkness, it is their right, they have a right to mishpat. And so the burden then, the joyful burden that we get to participate in is we get to help bring that. We're invited to say, as a people who've experienced the right ordering that the gospel brings, we are sent out. And so this morning, I want to look at this theme of justice or mishpat and evangelism as we conclude. And again, 
just grateful that we are in this topic on this particular day as we celebrate God's faithfulness over the past 10 years and as we gathered some 10 years ago, there was a call to be about mission and evangelism, all right? And I got up there and talked about those things and it wasn't a come follow me because I've got this all locked down. I'm amazing at this. This is a great gift and strength of mine. It was this, I feel God's calling me into this and I feel like I'm a terrible evangelist and I don't actually know what to do with that but there's been this invitation that Jesus has walked with us that Jesus has seen people move and he's made them move from death to life and it's been a testimony to his strength and his power and God loves to use us in our weakness. And so even this morning, some 10 years later, I'm not up here like, well, I'm the expert on evangelism and everybody just kind of sit at my feet and listen, but rather we need to come back to what Jesus tells us, encourages us, empowers us by the spirit. And if you're thinking, well, this doesn't normally, I don't get how this is the justice issue, you have to go back to the definition. Justice is about the right ordering. And the right order that God intended from the very beginning is that we would be in right relationship, certainly with other people and with the creation, but ultimately in this vertical relationship between us as men and women, that we would have this, this right ordering with our creator, God. And so evangelism is most certainly a justice issue. There are people who their lives are disordered because they don't know Jesus and it's our opportunity as the church, not out of guilt, but in a joyful participation to go. And so I encourage you to do this. Um, the text we're gonna be in this morning is Luke chapter 10. Anything that's on the slides here this morning, you can go to cpwp.life on your phone, swipe over the second card, it says message notes. You can follow along, you can take notes there, email them to yourself afterwards. That way if you're like, oh, that was, I like that quote, what was that, you're trying to furiously scribble it now, it's there, you can go to it afterwards. But Luke chapter 10, verses one to 20 is what we're gonna look at for a few moments together this morning on this topic of what is the church called to do. And so if you brought a Bible, please turn there. We'll make our way through this, this text. If you didn't, there's some paperback ones on the back table and you can turn to page 962 if you're using one of those particular Bibles, all right? So Luke 10, one to 20. And so what I wanna start out with, I wanna read the first 16 verses and just talk about this mission, this mission of Mishpat that Jesus sends the 72 on, but it's not just for them a couple thousand years ago. It's for you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, your calling as a Christian is you are a sent one and we are a sent people, all right? That this is written to a group of people and there's this calling for mission. So let me read this in Luke chapter 10. We'll read the first 16 verses and then come back and talk through some of the details here. After this, it says, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Verse three, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, carrying no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Verse seven, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom 
than for that town. I'll stop there. We'll come back to a couple of these things in a moment. But I want to, just these opening verses, want to ask you, what is it that we learn about evangelism? I think there's a lot of things, and if we had more time, we could tease out other implications and applications. But I want to highlight just a handful of things here that we see in the text. And so right off the bat, did you notice this? Can anyone tell me one of the names of the 72? You remember any of the 72? They write any other books that we're aware of? Like, here's the reality, is that God uses the nameless. And I love that this particular story, like we get the names of some of the apostles and those, those things, but here there are 72 people that are sent out. There are 72 people that are gonna re- return when we get to the end of this passage rejoicing because God used them and they're average, ordinary people. We don't even get their name, that God uses the nameless. And I find that incredibly encouraging because the reality is I feel ill-equipped for the task that God has called me to, the task that God has called all of us to. My guess is you feel the same. And even when we talk about evangelism, if you've been a Christian for a while, you're probably like, I feel like I should be better at that. And it's like, listen, just stop and breathe for a moment and trust like God is the one that does the work. He uses us most certainly but he's not asking you to convert somebody. He's not putting that pressure on you. That's his role, that's his job. Our calling is to be a faithful witness to the realities of Jesus. And so the calling here is like to go out and to be sent and God uses the nameless. He doesn't use the ones that have got everything all figured out because the reality is other than Jesus in the Bible, that's, that's no one else does. And he uses the nameless. And so the question becomes for us, will you and I, will we live as one of the 72? In the past 10 years, I'm thankful that this has begun to be embodied. And I believe, though, that there's more that the Lord wants to, to do in and through us. And so will we embrace this? It wasn't just the 72 back then, but will we live as part of this community that's sent out? I love the way this theologian spoke of it, Harvey Kahn, and he said this, One cannot be a missionary church and continue insisting that the world must come to the church on the church's terms. It must become a go structure. And so, yes, we gather and we invite, but the reality is when we end this service today, we are being commissioned to go, to go back out. That is our calling as the church. It says the church must recapture its identity as the only organization in the world that exists for the sake of its non-members. What an interesting perspective on the church. It's why we even want to use the language of partnership and partners in the gospel where Paul writes to the Philippians, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you from the first day until now for your partnership in the gospel. Thank you for being partnered in the gospel. So that's the first thing. God uses the nameless and we are sent out. We also see in this very first verse, it talks about 72. And that was a way, like that was a number that was loaded with significance. So for the people who would have heard this, would have saw Jesus organizing the people in that way, it wasn't just, well, let's just pick a random number. This had significance because in that time and in that place, there were believed to have been 72 nations that comprised the the world. And so when God organizes, when Jesus, the God-man, the Savior, organizes these group of people into this kind of pack of 72 and sends them out two by two, It's a way to say God's heart is for all the nations. God has a plan that it's much, much bigger than what was just happening in and around Jerusalem. It was to spread to all the world. God has a bigger plan than just what has happened and is happening here in Winter Park and Central Florida. God's heart is for the world, and we are to play our part faithfully. There's also this invitation here that we have to see in this very first verse. They're sent out two by two. 
Listen, that any bit of burden that you might feel, that is meant for one, if it's a guilt, that, that's, that's from the enemy. If there's condemnation, all right? But if there's good, healthy conviction, that's the spirit at work. And the way that God works oftentimes is by you and somebody else or a group of people being on mission together. We see this. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't send them out as individuals to just go, okay, you're on your own. But they went together. Know that this is a church family, that we're on this mission together. This is why we try and encourage you to be in smaller groups. Watch that you can live on mission together. You need people to encourage you, to pray for you, to pray for your friends, to, to have a, a, a listening ear when you're like, I'm just so frustrated. I don't understand why we're not seeing any more growth or whatever it happens to be. We need each other. And then look at verse two, and I think this is so, so key. It says, Jesus turns to them and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Truth be told, I look out and I see a changing culture in a world and an increasing indifference, perhaps even hostility to the things of God, to his purposes, to Jesus' church. And I look out and tend to think, oh my goodness, like if there could only be a harvest, but my perspective needs to be changed. This verse here given by Jesus wasn't meant just for the people back then, but it's for us as we sit here this morning to shift our perspective to realize, no, the harvest is plentiful. That's never been the issue. But rather, Jesus says, no, I've got a labor issue on my hands. That the laborers are few. That there's too many consumeristic Christians sitting on the sideline thinking, all right, well, me and Jesus are cool and not playing their parts. That the calling is to see more laborers raised up. And then there's this call here, like to pray earnestly for that. And I think one of the things we'll find as we pray earnestly for that is you'll start to realize, I'll start to realize, for one, how we can be the answer to this particular prayer. Like, oh, like, I need to get in the game. I need to participate. I need to have eyes that are open to see, no, the harvest is plentiful. To not walk around thinking that it's just some weird aberration that somebody might be interested. What if we understood from Jesus' perspective that he's been at work and we simply get to proclaim this message, to have a conversation, to seek to build spiritual friendships with people and have our eyes open to the reality that there's a whole lot more interest than we sometimes think. So will we pray earnestly? John Teeter in his book, The Power of the 72, I would commend you. It's a great exposition of this passage written by a church planner and telling some of their story. And he says this, without prayer, we can't see spiritual realities that are present but often invisible. Without prayer, we won't be led to ask questions that help us see that the person is ripe fruit waiting to be gathered. And without prayer, we walk around our cities. Now think about this. We walk around our cities with our heads down instead of walking with our chins up, expectant and eager to meet whomever God has prepared for us. What if we weren't a church that walked with our heads down, but rather with our heads up with this anticipation, this joyful anticipation of, oh, I wonder what God's gonna do next. How do I get to participate with him? What conversation has the Lord appointed for me? Resting in the fact of what Jesus declared through his servant Paul in Acts 17 that the time and places in which we live and inhabit have been determined by God, that you're not here this morning by accident, that God determined for you to be here, to hear this message, to be part of this community, to live in the place that you do, to have the friendships that you do, to work where you do, all of those things. What would that look like? 
We've got a labor issue, not a harvest issue. And then verse three says this. Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Like, oh, yay, all right, awesome, all right? So apparently, as we get ready for this, we get all fired up. Okay, cool, all right, laborer, I'm in, all right? Let's go out there. Jesus says, hey, here's the image I want you to have. This is you, all right? And there are wolves out there, all right? Now, when we see that and he uses that imagery at first, it's like, well, then what in the world are we doing? Like, we're going to be defeated. This is sudden death. This is some sort of suicide mission. Like, why in the world would we do that? But Weakness beats the wolves. God's way is always upside down. It's always counterintuitive. He loves to use our weakness to showcase his strength. And so he says, I'm sending you out as lambs. And part of that is, is our disposition is to be, to be patient and loving and kind and gentle. The world tries to win converts to their particular worldview in a wolf-like way. And we have an opportunity. No, you're not trying to beat somebody into the kingdom. You're going to patiently love them and serve them and care for them. And your weakness and my weakness, the Lord Jesus doesn't view it as a weakness. He's like, no, I gave you that. And you're meant to use all that I've given to you, including your weaknesses, so that his strength might be showcased. So at the end of the day, we don't sit around bringing glory to ourselves. That's never the point. I read an article this week in Desiring, Desiring God by a guy named John Bloom. Look what he says about this. And then it corresponded very nicely to even where I was in my scripture reading and looking this, this week in the, the life of Moses. And he said, hey, let's just pay attention to who the Lord tends to call. Because if you're feeling weak, he's like, well, you're in good company. What was on God's list of qualifications for Israel's Exodus leader and greatest old covenant prophet? You know, you see this job description gets posted and the Lord basically says, all right, you must be a Jewish member of Egyptian royalty, must commit capital murder, must live in obscurity as a fugitive shepherd for 40 years, oh, and must be a poor public speaker. That's Moses' resume, right? Like, and of course he argues with God, no, not me. And God's like, I love to work through weakness so that he can demonstrate his strength. Continues in the article, God never calls us to any kingdom responsibility we are capable of pulling off on our own. It doesn't matter whether one is called to confront Pharaoh or to love his neighbor enough to share the gospel with him. No one can do what only God can do, harden or soften the human heart. All power belongs to God. If we do not feel a keen sense of our inadequacy for whatever assignment God gives us, we're not in touch with reality. You and I, we embrace our weakness. We're lambs sent out among wolves. And when we embrace that, when we see that there's a harvest, we sign up, we get in the game, we participate through the power of the Spirit, we embrace the fact that we are weak, we don't have anything in us that can convert somebody, and we realize, listen, it is all God. We're in a really healthy spot. May we as a church live as people that embrace this sort of lamb-like mentality that we see ourselves that way. And then there's a number of different things in here, but in four to eight, I would say this. You just look at this call to this single-minded trust. So carry no money bag or knapsack, no sandals, all right? Basically, like, don't take any extra provisions with you on this. The Lord will provide. And it even says, greet no one on the road, which seems very odd when you're considering mission, right? Hey, what are you up to? I'm not allowed to talk to you, right? I mean, that just seems very odd, but the... the language here that's being used is in that time and in that culture, they were very involved greetings and process that you have to, to go through. And Jesus is like, listen, this task is too urgent. 
you're going to be tempted to sit around and talk with, with people that maybe already believe what you believe and just kind of hang out. He's like, I need you with this sort of laser-like focus. Like, you've got work to do. And so he sends them out. And he tells them, all right, go into whatever house you enter. Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. There's just this call in this to trust. Do you and I trust that God will provide? And maybe you and I being on mission is going to be less about him providing particular meals, but do you trust that the Lord is going to bring people into your life? He probably already has. Are you going to trust that he is actually going to speak through you? And you don't have to come as one with sort of these wise and eloquent words where you kind of feel like, oh, you know, of course they're going to believe this. Like, I've put together this amazing thing. I've got slides even for this person, right? Like, the reality is we're going to stumble and stammer our way through this, and the Lord's like, perfect. Are you just being a faithful witness? Are you trusting God? And all of this leads to ultimately what we trust in is the the message. And so pick back up in in verse 9. Heal the sick in it, which is a way of saying, Listen, like seek to care for people, the brokenness that's there. Certainly pray for people's sickness. This is not an expectation that you go out and now start working miracles, right? We pray into that. We believe that they can still happen. But there's also just this space to enter into the places of brokenness and of hurt. Try and bring care, compassion, bring some of that mishpat. And so bring that. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So these are some difficult words that the Lord Jesus is saying. He's saying, this message that you proclaim, it'll be, it's, it's putting a stake in the ground. Jesus doesn't leave room for some of this gray area. He's like, you're either with me or you're not. And you go and you proclaim and there's this encouragement here, not, not to get, I mean, we all probably have stories of somebody that like God over time, you're like, wow, that was a really long process, but praise God that they became a follower. But there's also this calling here to sometimes recognize that there's certain people that are so against it, like move on and just trust if God wants to do something, like it'll be clear at another time. So there's this response that it elicits And then verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. And this language here is Jesus being grieved. It's language of empathy. Are we grieved over our community? Are you grieved over your neighborhood? Are you grieved over family members that don't believe what you believe? Woe to you, he says, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. And then verse 16, the one who hears you, hears me. So when you and I proclaim the truth of the gospel, when we announce that the kingdom of God has come, God is speaking his very words through you. And the one who rejects you, he says, well, they actually ultimately reject me. So when you feel rejected, like, listen, it's not about you and me anyway. So you might get rejected, but they're ultimately rejecting Jesus, and he will deal with it. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Ultimately, it's a rejection of God the Father. And so let's look at this for just a couple of moments here. The kingdom of God has come near to you. 
This is announcement language. This is a proclamation that the heavenly realm has invaded the earth, all right? This is the kingdom of God is breaking in. And so Jesus says, go out there and tell people that God is on the move. Jesus speaks of it in other ways, like Matthew 9, 35, and it's often paired the kingdom with this word gospel. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, which at this point in the story, Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. There's been no resurrection, and yet there's a gospel to proclaim. So what in the world is happening here? What is this gospel of the kingdom? What Jesus is doing is he's borrowing language from the Roman culture. You see, in that day, some of you might be aware of this, but there were Caesars that lived, all right? And a Caesar, like Caesar Augustus, for instance, would send out a decree. And here's what has been historically recorded down through the ages. Caesar Augustus, at various times, would send out a word out to areas that he had conquered, and it would say, you know, behold, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Like, wait a minute. I thought it was the gospel of God's kingdom of Jesus. But Jesus is using that language to make a point. Culturally, there was this understanding that the greatest power that the world had ever known was the Caesar, and this gospel is this proclamation of news about something that has historically happened, and it is going to elicit a response. You have to respond to it. And the Romans would show up and be like, here's this proclamation, Caesar's bringing peace, all right? And the way that that would happen is that you either bow to Caesar or you get your head chopped off, right? Or you get put on a cross or you get burned alive. Like, there are all sorts of ways that they dealt with dissenters. And now Jesus comes on the scene and says, it's not the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It's not the gospel of the Caesars. It's this whole other kingdom, the true kingdom, the kingdom that you and I were made to be part of. But it elicits a response. Here's the reality. When Jesus says this, he's looking ahead as well to what he's going to do on the cross, what he's going to accomplish through his life, his death, his resurrection, and the call for a response. Jesus doesn't give good advice. Jesus gives good news. This has historically happened. This is why we get this in like Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves who were once foolish, disobedient, led astray to various Passion, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So that's your description and my description. That's our resume pre-meeting Jesus, all right? But Jesus gives us away, and it's not good advice about how to clean yourself up and make yourself acceptable before God. No, there's this new reality. The kingdom of God has broken in, and it says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. You didn't clean yourself up. I didn't clean myself up. I should have died for my sin. You should have died. The wrath of God should have been poured out in you and me for our rebellion, for the hatred, the animosity that we have towards fellow image bearers and ultimately toward our God, our rebellion. And Jesus steps in. And the good news of the gospel, the heralding, the good news that we get to proclaim is that there's not a message of how to fix yourself. There's a message that Jesus has fixed it all once and for all. When he died the death that you and I deserve to die, when he conquered Satan, sin, and death three days later by rising again, where he then is exalted, he's ruling and reigning. And one day, he's coming back to set everything right when there'll be the ultimate mishpat, new heavens and new earth, every tear wiped away. And there's this call then Will you submit now and find life? Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And you can either do that now and get in on this life, or you can confess that at some other point when you recognize that it's too late. And there's this call for us to be heralds, this, 
Words continued by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, justified by his grace, not in your good works, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the message we get to proclaim. Something historical has happened. Like, are you trying to convert people? Yes. We want to be, we want to see Jesus convert people. You shouldn't try and do that can sometimes be the narrative. You telling me not to try and convert somebody is you trying to convert me to your reality. So let's just call it what it is. We're all playing the same thing here. But I believe that this conversion will actually lead to life, and I want you to experience that. So you engage in the questions, engage in the dialogue, but everybody is an evangelist. Everybody's trumpeting some sort of worldview, and we're like, here's the one we believe that brings life. So ultimately what we need to see, and I'll close with this, is what is our motivation? We have to understand these last three verses. If we're going to be a faithful church, look at what Jesus says in verses 17 to 20. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So you can see, they're pretty hyped. They're pretty excited. They're like, this is unbelievable. Like this short-term mission trip you sent us on, like they all came back. It's not like a handful of them did. It's not like half the group and the other half's like, wait, we didn't experience anything. All 72 have unbelievable stories to tell, all right? That's what's going on. So they returned with joy. And then verse 18, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, which is there's a number of different ways one could interpret this. It's Jesus, it could be him saying like, yeah, and as, as you were doing those things and people were responding, like I actually saw what it was doing in the spiritual realm. It could also be a reference to Jesus saying, hey, I'm clearly the son of God because when the angel fell, that is Satan, he's like, I was there for that. Like, I've seen far more spectacular things. So whatever it is, Jesus is like, listen, that is amazing, that's great, but he's trying to set them up to hear these truths that he's getting ready to proclaim because he says, behold, verse 19, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. And then he says this, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. If we're going to be a faithful church, and I'll close with this, faithfully engaging the mission, proclaiming the message, we have to have the right motivation. And the right motivation is when we rest in the fact that it's not about what we do, it's about what Jesus has done for us. Your name is written in heaven. I love that the way this even starts. You got 72 that are nameless, but what we know by here is they are named by God and they are called sons and daughters of the king and their name is there. And there's a perspective sometimes out in the the world and every other religion would say at the end of time, if you did the right things, you get to have your name written out. But that's not the way Christianity works. The good news, the gospel that we get to herald is the name has been written down regardless of what you've done. That your name is there, your identity is in Christ. It is sure because Jesus will not lose any of his sheep. He knows who he's going to bring in. Our call is simply to be faithful, to bear witness. Now in that, I don't know why I thought of this this week. All right, it's kind of a random illustration to close with, but that's all right. All right, Um, I like random, obscure movies. This movie, I was three years old when it came out. All right, 1979. All right, some of you are like, they had movies back then. I don't. All right, but 
But this old movie with Steve Martin, great Saturday Night Live guy, all right, um, back, back in the day. And so I'm thinking about, about this particular movie called The Jerk, if you're wondering what it is, all right? So I'm not saying run home and go, I haven't watched it in years, but this scene came to mind. I'm not sure, sure why. But there's this really odd character that Steve Martin plays, and he's just so in search of his identity in the world, all right? Like he doesn't know his place. He's just freaking out, and he's working one day. He's a gas station attendant. He's there pumping gas, gas for people, all right? Um, and the guy that is his boss, they're having this interaction and Steve Martin suddenly starts freaking out because this van pulls up and the van pulls up and the, and the boss is like, what are you so excited about? He's like, the phone book is here. Now, phone books were those things years ago that they would print and they'd drop. All right, but anyway, all right. So the phone book is here and his boss is like, what, what, whatever, man, like that's nothing. And here was his response as he runs and he picks it up. He's like, nothing? Are you kidding? Page 73 as he's like flipping through. Johnson, Navin R, that's his name in the movie, all right? I'm somebody now. He says, millions of people look at this book every day. This is the kind of spontaneous publicity, your name in print, that makes people. I'm in print. Things are going to start happening to me now, all right? So he has this moment of exultation because his name is written down. Now, here's the fascinating thing, and here's the sad thing, and here's where this applies to you and me is this reality. We are going out all the time out into the world looking for validation. Will my job validate me? Will this relationship validate me? Will people think I'm funny? Will they think that I'm interesting? Did I get enough likes on social media? You may not be looking for your name in the phone book, but you're probably tracking, did you get comments? Did you get response? Like, what is it at a heart level? We are constantly seeking life and validation outside of the source that is Jesus. And when we look for it, and even when we find it, that thing will turn on you. Because here's the very next scene. It's very bizarre, I told you, in this movie. There is a man who we know in this movie, all right? He's, he's got this random obsession as a sniper to just take people out, okay? Strange movie, I told you, right? Um, and he opens up the same phone book with his eyes closed, and he goes, boom. And he looks. He's like, Navin R. Johnson, right? And he begins now to hunt this man down to try and shoot him, all right? Now, Navin R is celebrating the fact my name is in the phone book. And another guy is like, yeah, your name's in the phone book. I'm gonna kill you. This is the picture of how it works. When we find our identity in anything other than the finished work of Jesus, it will turn on you. Tim Keller says this. If you, we're going from the jerk to Tim Keller. So here we go. If you rejoice in anything but the grace of God that writes your name down in heaven, your blessings will become your curses. It's amazing that we got to share the stories that we did. Thank you for submitting those things. At the end of the day, though, here's the reality. The mission is going to cease because one day there's gonna be ultimate worship, all right? And so we can celebrate those things and we give praise to God for those things and they should, hopefully they spur us on to more mission. But at the end of the day, if we're looking even for the particular story so we feel good about who we are in the world or what we're doing, those things will fail us. What if the comments dry up? What if the people go away? What if the church shuts down? Who are we in Christ. And the reality is this, if you're looking to anything but Jesus for your validation, that thing, even if you get it, will ultimately turn on you. And God has more for you. You're heralds of good news. The good news is that Jesus has made you new. You're a new creation. So I want to give us a moment to respond to this. What is it that maybe the Lord is stirring in you that you just need to repent of? To repent means to, to not it's not this groveling before God, but it is this recognition. I've been living a particular way, trying to make a name for myself, maybe not being willing to do the will of God. Will you repent? Will you turn in a new direction? Will you remember the fact that Jesus died for you, that he was glad to die for you, that for the joy of the cross, for that he, he endured suffering, like for the joy of seeing you brought into the family?
and will you rejoice? Your name's written in heaven. We're looking for all kinds of ways to have our name written, to have it put in lights, to, to want to be seen and known and celebrated. And the God of the universe, he's written your name down if you're a follower of him. He's inviting you this morning, if you haven't trusted in him, to have your name added. You get to rejoice. I'm going to give us some instructions in a moment how we're going to continue in the rest of our service. But I want to, I'll close this in prayer and give you a moment to pray as well. And if you need prayer, there are folks in the back of our prayer team would love the opportunity to pray with you, to pray for you. But we'll have some silent time of reflection too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day that you've given us, this glorious day where we get to gather as the church in a space that we're, where we've been gathering week after week after week for 10 years. So Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word that is living and active, that every time it's preached and proclaimed, God, that you're doing something. And so I just trust, Holy Spirit, that right now that you would be at work, that you would lead us in repentance, that you would remind us of the truth of the gospel, that we might rejoice in who we are, that we wouldn't be going out into the world looking for an identity. May we repent of that when we recognize and trust and rest in the fact that our identity is sure because of who you are, Jesus, that we've been made new. So God, I pray that you would hear our prayers now, that you would get your glory, and that we as your people, that we would experience joy. Hear our prayers now, in Jesus' name, amen.